Welcome along everyone to another of Shared Ireland's podcasts. Today we'll be having a conversation with a man who is very active on social media. He's an ex-Lord Mayor of Belfast, the youngest I believe to date at 25. He's also an avid Irish speaker. I'm delighted to welcome Sinn Féin Senator Niall O'Donoghue. Dear Niall. Cheers Mara, Niall can you my Niall, you're from the short stand area of Belfast. Can you tell us a little bit about the area and what it was like growing up there? Well, I suppose the short strands like a lot of uh, inner city uh, working class communities um, in, in lots of ways, but in other ways it's very distinctly different. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's almost like a, a wee village. Um, it's it's quite small. It's quite confined uh, for obvious uh, reasons. Um, so it, it was a great area to grow up in because you had a really strong sense of place, a really so- strong sense of... Uh, community and, and, and bonding and obviously a lot of your family uh, was there but at the same time too it was an area that was probably disproportionately impacted by uh, the conflict uh, in very many similar ways to a lot of other areas as I say but also in very distinctive ways because of the geographical nature uh, mm-hmm. of the area because of the heavy militarization yeah. uh, of the area but also because of the I suppose high uh, level of activity by uh, Republicans in yeah. the area as well. So you had a, a real melting pot uh, of, of an area um, in, in, in the short strand. And I think it was a, a great place to grow up and, and get a sense of yourself, get a sense of other people, um, and also get a sense of um, the broader the broader uh, life of, of the, the city and the country we were living in. Mm-hmm. And I suppose, Niall, Considering what you're only after saying and where you were brought up, was Sinn Féin the only obvious choice for you when you decided to enter the political arena? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I remember when when I was actually elected the Lord Mayor doing an interview with Mark Davenport from the BBC, done one of these kind of day in the life things Mm -hmm. with me. And uh, I I remember talking about, he was talking about my own family background and, you know, our own Republican background and, and, you know, was was it inevitable that I would go down this this path uh, in in life, and I always say I was brought up a Republican, but I wasn't indoctrinated into Republicanism. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I was brought up in a political family and in a family that that discussed you politics. You were aware. I was aware, mm-hmm. and, and 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 my family, I think, without shoving that down our throats, acknowledged the importance of 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 wanting to be conscious of what was happening within our own context, but also within a a world context other struggles around the world palestine south africa i mean one of my earliest memories is my mother sitting us down in front of the tv to watch mandela getting out of jail yes you know when i was i was very young to i suppose appreciate the the nuance Mm -hmm. significance of that but i understood the significance and that something was happening and we were made here you know it was a case of you're not moving sit down we're watching this you know um that was our kind of moon landing i suppose Mm -hmm. as as a family so you know for me, Sinn Féin became the obvious choice once I started to question the political and social and economic circumstances mm-hmm. of where I lived because they were the vehicle that was active in the area, that was present, that was engaged, and, and, and there was no one else. So obviously my politics and my ethos and, and my aspirations, aspirations um, should I say, matched up with uh, Sinn Féin uh, very much so. So that was, that was uh, I suppose, then... Not not an inevitable, but the most likely next step. Certainly. Once once those questions and that decision in my own mind to 
be involved in political activism, to be involved in community activism. Um, that was that was for me the very obvious um, vehicle and the one that I could see would, would deliver for, for in that first instance my mm. locality because like a lot of people that's your first correct you know entrance into political at activism level. at that local that's level right. and, and and I hope and I like to think that I've sustained that you know that that local engagement and that local kind of participation and, and 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 that's very important uh, to me um although it's much more difficult now you know I'm, I'm not in the city council anymore I'm in the to Dublin. well I remember one of the first kind of when Jerry Adams was party president they used to do a kind of you know six monthly report card thing where you would go in and you know I remember my first one uh, he said to me now you need to understand when you're in the Shannon your constituency's Ireland yes yes you know? very good so that's 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 something that I have really tried to have front and center when when I've uh, when I, when I've been doing this that you need to be cognizant of or take cognizance of the fact that you're working at a national uh, level. Um, sometimes you're working at an international level, and we'll see the delegation from uh, the U.S. Congress here tomorrow. Nancy Pelosi's leading that; she'll speak in the Dáil Chamber. Um, so it's 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 been a real um, upsurge uh, in terms of uh, political activism and participation. Um, that that that. From being in the Shannon, you can you can uh, operate at that level, um, and also uh, you know I suppose try and dovetail the both. Yeah, bring, bring the local experiences, bring the local um, understanding and knowledge um, with you to the Shannon, but mm -hmm. also bring what you're doing in the Shannon and what's happening at that national level back into the area, back into, back the, into the city, yeah. back into the north. Yeah, and certainly what I have what I have encountered since making the move here and it may just be a wee anecdotal thing i'm not over hyping it either but it's just it's it's a wee pattern it's a wee trend i've noticed you know there's been a series of by-elections and other elections since in the north since i came down here and when i've been out and about uh while it was west Tyrone, while it was in different parts of belfast the amount of people who meet me and say there's our senator very good so there is an understanding i think and an appreciation of the purpose of my role yes in here that kind of leads me on just to something I was going to ask you, Niall. Um, as I stated at the start of this um, podcast, you are the youngest Lord Mayor of Belfast mm -hmm. at 25. So you've had your kind of teeth cut in, in your home area, as mm -hmm. you alluded to. But what was the reason that took you south and into Dublin and ultimately to become Sinn Féin Senator here? Well, I suppose that's not really a question I, I can answer per se, um, but there was, you know, it, it was put to me uh, from uh, the party leadership that this is a role that if I felt I could undertake it, you know, they saw me taking on that role. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, once it was put to me that this was being considered, this was something that the, the party uh, leadership were discussing and, and certainly they were looking at it within the context of an increased Sinn Féin team in the Shannon. Yeah. You know, we, we, we were inevitably, because of the gains at local government, because of the gains in the Dáil, we were going to get more seats um, in the Shannon. So I think maybe because of, you know, my my own forthright approach to um, talking about and dealing with things on a national basis and, you know, my own very public um, disdain for Matt heard from me once or twice. Matt Aaron has heard from me once or twice, and as have the Late Late Show on RTE <laughs> yes, right. and BBC and, and and many others. Yeah. But 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 I mean, 
the, the, the Charlotte offers you a real... And, and what I noticed about it, comparative to the time as uh, Lord Moore, was that that role in City Hall is a great convener of people. Mm-hmm. It's a great way to get people around a table. It has no executive function beyond chairing the council. It's a ceremonial role primarily, so it's yours to do with what you want to do with it. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, the Shamit has to go through, and some people are dismissive of the Shamit, and I understand why, um, but you have to go through the mechanics of the legislation and you have to go through all of the minutiae of that and, mm-hmm. and at times that's very complex and yeah. very you know no bigger monster than the data protection bill around the gdpr that went yeah. through you know and nobody will give a second thought actually thinking about the poor handful of us and the shannon from various parties that had to go through mm-hmm. all of that the judicial appointments bill at the minute is being filibustered we're at about a hundred hours of debate around that at this stage. Okay. Um, so you go through all that, but the other thing that I noticed about um, the, the Shamit, similar to uh, City Hall, is that it can be a great platform for national conversations. Uh-huh. It has the opportunity to err views. And now people can go and, and, and talk about parties pump politics because they want to get a doll seat. And in some ways, that's fair enough. That's part of politics. I have to go and do it. But what it has allowed me to do and what it has allowed Ian to do as well, and I think Ian has been a really this worthwhile, Ian, Ian Marshall, Marshall yeah. uh, Saturday Ian Marshall, has been a real worthwhile uh, contribution uh, to the Shamit, has been to just again break down that kind of psychological partition and that psychological border um, to talk about issues that impact uh, on us, whether it's political, whether it's agricultural in, in Ian's context, whether it's economic. Um, and even I've noticed a lot of the senators even tampering their, their language and adopting their language accordingly, you know, because when, when I came in here, I spent most of my time when they talked about national statistics and the, 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 the country, I would have said, no, the state, you're talking about the state, you're mm-hmm. getting the two mixed up. Yeah. And to be fair, not in a combative way, mm-hmm. but actually when a lot of them stopped and thought about it, they said, no, do you know what, actually, that, that's, that's true. <laughs> so they've kind of modified their language um, appropriately yeah. and and I think that's right and that's proper and even just the fact that Ian and I are sitting in the chamber is a reminder that it's not called Shannon Somerville it's called Shannon Aaron yes, so it, it, it needs to reflect that's an important all of us yeah. you know very good Niall your time as Lord Mayor of Belfast the DUP's Ruth Patterson was your deputy uh, she refused to speak to you or shake your hand during mm-hmm. that time and her party, the DUP, backed her in this decision. Yeah. I assume you don't send each other many Christmas cards at the moment. <laughs> Do you know, I won around in the end. Oh, did you? I did, surely. Very good. Um, I'm amazed that people would think otherwise. Um, <laughs> no, it, it was frosty at the start, and Ruth obviously has a reputation and had a reputation in the City Council for a long time and in the broader public um, around her kind of staunch uh, loyalism and, and stuff like that. Um, but... Look, listen, what, what, what I, I think what kind of came, and I can't speak for Ruth, it's her, to, it's her place to speak for herself, but I, I think she had this real confused uh, understanding of that role. I think she thought it was OFM to AFM, mm-hmm. and we were equals in the office. And what she soon realised was she was there to deputise on my behalf. Yeah. And if she wanted to do anything. So communication was important? Of course it was important. And and the vast bulk of the communication at Ruth's request um, was done via the staff in the office. Okay. So when it came to the bit where she was under no illusions that if she wanted to do events and if she wanted to participate in events and represent the city at events, she would have to mm-hmm. participate in the office um, and in the role. So... 
she and I, I mean, to be fair to her, she, she put in Trojan work in helping to get the uh, World Irish Dancing Championships to Belfast. And I thought it was important that she and I attend that together mm -hmm. and that she would have the opportunity to do that, uh, which we did. She wanted to come down and uh, congratulate Terry and Orla George the time that they won the Oscar for the show. Mm -hmm. I was hosting them um, uh, for a wee civic reception. She came to that. Um, and, and again, that was appropriate. And to be fair, um, it was a different climate in City Hall at the time. Politically, things have moved uh, uh, since then. So, you know, she wanted to represent the city at the... Uh, you may remember there was this homecoming period yes. for uh, troops mm -hmm. at the Balmoral. Mm -hmm. um, she also represented the city uh, at advance that it wasn't yet, and it isn't yet, uh, appropriate for... Um, I think Republicans and Nationalists to attend. Um, so all of that, I mean, if she wanted to do that effectively, she had to work. So she came around and, I mean, look, no, we don't send each other Christmas cards. And, you know, I don't know where she is at now in, in terms of having, you know, left the DUP and, and, and some of the things that have happened there politically uh, since. But certainly by the end uh, and coming towards the end of the term, I think we had an understanding uh, of, of how uh, best to work. But I'll be honest, I mean, it wasn't easy. It, to be, I remember the DUP I was having a dinner with the group leader at, uh, on the night of the AGM because we didn't know who they were going to pick right up until mm -hmm. we were eating our dinner before the meeting um, I was having a dinner with Jim McVeigh who was a group leader at the time and Arthur Carson who then subsequently went on to become uh, a Lord Mayor later on down the line and the DUP came and whispered in Jim's ear who it was Yeah, and he took great delight in telling me I have to say but my heart did sink for for a wee while, but then look, look, like a lot of it, I just thought, never worry, that's a distraction. This is this is the role. This is the year. This is the job. Yeah, just go and do it. So it was a privilege. It was a great year, and I enjoyed it, and it and it did help me learn a lot and 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 shape a lot in terms of what is expected of you and what you can and can't uh, do um, in in terms of elected politics, but also when you should try and push the boundaries a wee bit as well. Just before we get off the subject of you and the uh, Mayor of Belfast, I was speaking to a friend of mine last night mm. and I was telling him I was coming to meet you today mm. and he jokingly said to me, ask him this question, so I'm going to ask Go him. Go for it, you might as well. Uh, did you ever put back the two royal portraits that you oh, replaced I, with the United Irishman and the proclamation? I, I did, no I did, surely. And and if, if you remember that, I remember somebody saying to me, i done that fairly early on into the term and, and, and I retained the two, there was four uh, British royal portraits up in the party uh -huh. right, when I went in and there was nothing that reflected a nationalist or republican or working class um, uh, tradition and, and experience uh, in the city so for me and this was in the days now we've taken it as completely red you know, now if you're walking around the city, the permanent exhibition in the city hall where you can go and tour with your yeah. ears set on, you'll see all of those competing narratives reflected and represented yeah. in, in the city. So it's taken as red. Um, what I wanted to do and what I said was, look, I'm going to be in here for the year, mm -hmm. right? Um, and while it's not my space per se... But it's your home for that year. It's, it's my home. And I, I thought it was very important, firstly, that when people from Belfast came into the parlour, because that was one of my main objectives to get more people and that was always a Sinn Féin objective and it still is now with, with Deirdre Hargey at the minute to get Belfast people into where they wouldn't have been previously I wanted them to be able to see themselves reflected Yeah, I wanted to see I wanted them to feel comfortable but also feel challenged so if you walked in and you were from 
a Republican or Nationalist or Irish or Gaelic um, tradition and heritage. If I'd have left it the way it was in the year 2011, as it was then, where we should have been making significant progress, you wouldn't have seen yourself. Yeah. And if you were from a Unionist tradition, you would come in under the false pretense that everything was still as it was, mm-hmm. that the city hadn't changed, that the population hadn't changed, that the that the whole makeup of the city hadn't changed. So I retained the portrait of Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip. I took down um, Prince Charles and the late Queen Mother. They went down to um, Ruth's uh, office and I replaced it with the proclamation and with the uh, portrait of the United Irishmen. So as I say, what but what I also want to do, having said that about the uh, the, the local people, the Belfast people, the Mayor in Belfast welcomes delegations and visitors and ambassadors from all over the world all the time. Yes. All the time. There's not a day passes where there isn't a group in the city hall of one variation or another. Yeah. I thought it was very important that they see that Belfast wasn't monolithic. Mm-hmm. That Belfast wasn't solely unionist and loyalist and British. Yeah. That they seen that and that's why I asked for the ethnic minority communities to submit pieces as well and which which we did. And that has grown since then. And actually what was a bit contentious for about a day and a half is actually now the norm in City Hall. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's you know, it's the fact that we agreed the programme of events for the decade of centenaries, that we can have a civic dinner for the signing of the covenant, but we can also have a civic dinner for the Easter Rising. Yeah. So that was only a really small, tiny, albeit, uh, I suppose, an initial um, part of that. I mean, I don't understand how it was more contentious than Alex Maskey bringing in the uh, national flag alongside the Union Jack way mm-hmm. back in 2002. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that so so and I'm glad to say other uh, mirrors who have come since have retained some of it, have changed some of it, have adopted it to, to meet their own ethos yeah. and their own intention uh, for for the year. But th- th- I mean, the two were never like you had got this impression, and it happened in the course of the, uh, the the year, mostly due to you know one or two papers and things I got there that that they were hoofed out in the a, a, a skip. You know that never happened. They went they went down the corridor and in the uh, the into the the the, the deputy Lord Mayor's room, and there was the two retained. So I just wanted to try and strike that. Yeah. Do, do you know the way you heard a lot during the flag protest from us around equality or neutrality? Uh huh. You know there should be both or there should be none. Yeah. That was really just a, a kind of manifestation of that. Uh, that. That was it. It wasn't about taking anything away. It was just about adding in yeah. and reflecting all of us in our complexities and in our you know diversity and in our competing uh tr- traditions but then also in terms of the united irish main portrait also an awful lot of what unifies us mm-hmm. and, and where we both come from mm-hmm. in terms of our tradition people from a presbyterian background um but who were the pioneers and the visionaries of irish republicanism who sustained and preserved the irish language during very dark days um, so I was very proud to introduce those items in, into the city hall, and and I certainly don't regret that for for one minute. I think it was the right thing to do, and 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 as I say, I think it was um, it it was probably then in a short period of time understood. The world didn't stop. Look, I mean, as I say, you walk around the city hall now, and you'll see a big, you know, twelve foot copy of the 1916 proclamation up in the permanent visitors exhibition granted you'll walk around the corner and you'll see a big 30 foot photo of Carson and the lads 
saying in the Covenant, but that's that's okay, that's where we're at. Yeah. And that's what the City Hall should and needs to reflect. It's a but shared we, society. Well, we need to do more of it, mm-hmm. to be honest. We're not there yet. Yeah. Um, but that's the political and demographic and cultural makeup of where the city's at. I remember early on in my time in City Hall, Marching and you're saying, we're all minorities now. Mm-hmm. There, is, there, there, there is no majority in the city. Mm-hmm. We're all a minority. Um, so we need to learn to live and work. And, I, and, and to be fair, I think the council has made significant proce- progress in that regard. Yeah. Um, and, and symbolism and representation and reflection of each other is very important uh, in, in pushing that forward. Yeah, great. Now, I'll give them that most mainstream commentators think we need a new Ireland forum or a unity institute to analyse what is required for a new Ireland so that we don't make the same mistakes as Brexit. Mm. Is now the wrong time to call for a border poll, given that none of this is in place yet? Not at all. And and, and, and I'm going to call for a border poll before Brexit, during Brexit and after Brexit. Uh, I'm an Irish Republican, so that's my meat and drink. And I make absolutely no apology for it. I'm a product of the Good Friday Agreement generation. And sometimes we think, you know, if you'd listened to some commentators and some uh, so-called experts, the Good Friday Agreement was simply about the absence of conflict. I actually put a tweet out today in the context of everything that's going on. Um, certainly when you even li- listen to the stuff from Nancy Pelosi this morning around a US-UK trade deal, if there's any uh, undermining of the Good Friday Agreement, I actually I put a tweet out saying, the resolution is the solution. Mm-hmm. The resolution being the Good Friday Agreement and the solution being Irish reunification. Um, so advocating for um, Irish unity is not the same as Brexit. Advocating for a poll is not the same as advocating for Brexit. Advocating for a full realisation and implementation of the Good Friday Agreement is not the same as Brexit. So when I come into this institution, whether it's at committees or whether it's in the Shannon Chamber, as I do very regularly, I am met with this from Fianna Fáil, the Republican Party, and Fine Gael, the United Ireland Party, where they tell me, that's divisive. That's not the time to do that. Park your issues and let's not raise the hair on this. I actually think there's added impetus on us to navigate away through the agreed and democratically endorsed uh, structures within the Good Friday Agreement to get us out of this. Right? So I, I'm not saying I am not saying let's have a unity poll next week and let's be ill prepared for that. Let's run Ram Stam into it. Let's close our eyes hold our breath and jump into the abyss. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Sinn Féin's advocating. And I don't think that's what the broader energies, mobilised grouping around this issue are advocating for. I was at the, uh, and you should watch it back actually, I was at the uh, last All-Ireland Civic Dialogue on Brexit in Dublin Castle. And we heard from every political uh, shade uh, on the island, unfortunately, except uh, those from a unionist uh, persuasion. We heard from the Irish government in various guises, the Taoiseach, the Tanisha, various ministers. We heard from the business sector. We heard from uh, all kinds of uh, institutions uh, across Irish life, all trying to navigate a way that protects Irish interests, I hope, in the context of Brexit. Right? So the following week, maybe two weeks after, the Tanisha was in in front of the Good Friday Agreement Committee. The 
committee for the implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah. That's the full name of that committee. Uh-huh. So it's about the implementation thereof. And again, although he tampered his language, because I was at Queen's University when Antony Stewart said that the advocating for reunification was like pouring fuel into an already hot furnace, which I just found atrociously offensive. I remember him saying that late January. Yeah, yeah. I, it was at Queen's in a speech That's that he right. delivered at Queen's, yeah. and I just found that grossly offensive. That democratic aspirations endorsed and contained within the Good Friday Agreement was somehow that bad, mm-hmm. right, or that negative. So he tampered his language, I have to say, to be fair to him at the, the committee, but it was still this notion of has to wait, can't do it yet, down the line, all of that kind of stuff. This is a guy who was in front of the committee last year and said that he was a constitutional Republican and wanted to see a united Ireland in his political lifetime. I know that because he said it to me in response to a question that I asked him. Um, And I put it to him. I says, is Brexit divisive? Is Brexit toxic? Yes, absolutely. I says, well, why can you convene a civic dialogue on Brexit to try and navigate a way out? But yet you're telling me that somehow Irish reunification is somehow too toxic that we can't even convene a conversation. He says, well, the unionists wouldn't participate. And I says, well, sure, they're not participating in the civic dialogue. So, you know, you're speaking out of both sides of your mouth. And that has been a consistent approach from the Irish government. And I think that's why it's so crucially important that they have and continue to hear from that civic community, voluntary, cultural uh, uh Organisations and and uh, voices who have appealed to the Irish it government was directly. Like a dirty secret that shouldn't be talked about. I mean, it's mad. Yeah. it's mad. And to be fair, even like it's people like Mark Daly, who you've talked to, Senator Mark Daly from Fianna Fáil, who has you know said there's a constitutional obligation on you guys to do this. You know, even park the issue of the Good Friday Agreement, which remains unfulfilled. So look, I just don't think I just don't think people are going to tolerate after decades of conflict, after decades of peace building and negotiation and an assertion of your rights and your identity and progress, that then the people who are meant to be championing and responsible for your rights, for your aspirations as citizens, are then going to turn around and say, look, I heard on fan bombing you, just, just wait a wee minute there. That's, that's just not going to be tolerated. No. You know, you can't talk to an energised and politicised community and population coming off the back of conflict and suppression and repression and censorship and everything that went with it to then transform them into conflict transformation and then say but hold on see that bit that we all agreed and was endorsed and made actually i just don't think people are going to tolerate that and that's why it's it's i'm very enthused by what i see because sometimes you can't get lost in the bubble in here and you can't, I can't come into this office sometimes, slam that door and scream all kinds mm-hmm. of obscenities mm-hmm. around the room mm-hmm. when when I hear some of the absolute nonsense yeah. that I hear in this place. And 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 and, and that I find <clears throat> that I find offensive because people will get up and they will laud the Good Friday Agreement. And then when I get up and say, Okay, well let's live it, let's live the Good Friday Agreement, mm-hmm. let's you know see it through, mm-hmm. you think some hey you're coming in here to try and absolutely destabilize the place. Yeah. So, it's and maybe that maybe that is a wee indication of people's thinking. Mm-hmm. I was speaking to a Republican recently, and um, he said the idea of Irish men and women calling for the reunification or a new Ireland, calling what you want in two thousand and nineteen. You know why are people shocked about this? Because they were calling for it long before Brexit reared its ugly head, yeah. and they were calling for it. You know, hundred well, years ago. Well, I have never seen. I have never seen. You wouldn't see f- fancier footwork on Strictly. 
than the footwork uh, I witnessed at the mansion house for the joint sitting to commemorate the first doll. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, hi, one day you can walk into the mansion house, you can commemorate the sitting of the first doll, our elected democratic parliament, our, our assertion of our independence, of our nationhood, of our freedom, democratically endorsed, democratically established. And then the next day turn around and say, an exercise in democratic expression would be divisive. It's mad. It's off the wall. It's ahistorical. It's apolitical and it's offensive. And and I just I, I just think as as much as that energizes me as you can see, I just think it's also unsustainable. So I take great hope from the fact that look, we'll navigate through this because Again, we are products of a, a system that told us never, never, never. We are products of a system that told us, you know, Sinn Féin will never be in government. We are products of a system that said to us there'll never be devolved policing and justice powers. So I've heard all this before, yeah. and we have navigated a way through it with determination, with a, a spirit of cooperation and collaboration, yeah. and I think we'll do it in this regard uh, too in relation to the unification debate because it's, as I keep saying, and as you guys have are, are showing it's happening mm-hmm. it's already going on out there we had a conversation last week with two um two unionist gentlemen not from a political background mm. but like they are starting to think the unthinkable yeah. and we had a podcast with them for i think nearly an hour and it's one of the highest written podcasts mm. that we ever did and it got an excellent response and very through very few trolls you know chipping yeah. in yeah. as you would maybe expect but um you know when um when the unionist community are starting to talk about mm-hmm. this subject you know i think that's something that maybe i didn't even think i would see in my lifetime you of know course. and and look the, the game has changed and i mean i i, I wouldn't hang everything on this because it is anecdotal and, and I don't know what it's symbolic of but it's symbolic of something I mean when the day after Brexit the post office on the bottom of the Newton Arch Road runs out of Irish passport application forms that tells you something mm-hmm. now that's not to say all those people want a united Ireland no but it tells you that they're prepared to take a step that maybe 2, 5, 10, 15 years ago you'd say well that'll never happen yeah. Um. So that's only a wee small indication of what is happening more broadly. And you're right, look, I meet unionists all the time in this role and outside of this role who will say to me, look, they're not down about the idea of a united Ireland. They're not going to come out and march with me for it. Yeah. But they're beginning to ask the questions of what would a united Ireland mean for me? Yeah. And for me, I mean, we, we, we do need to tease all of this out, but the kind of the the bond cloth the 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 foundation stone it's 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 in that proclamation i put up on the wall it is the issue of of equality and mutual respect and 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 treating people fairly treating them justly um giving them a home looking after them um and 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 there has to be a scope for people to retain their britishness and that 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 doesn't threaten me or doesn't concern me or, or frighten me in any way shape or form because I'm a Republican. I believe a Republican should accommodate, uh, a Republic should accommodate people in all of their diversity and all of their guises. And 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 I think unionism, certainly sectors of unionism, are starting to think now not only with in terms of their pocket, mm-hmm. but also thinking in terms of their heart, 
whereby if they were able to retain that sense of themselves, that sense of um, their Britishness, yeah. um, then they could live within a united Ireland. Well, you mentioned um, independent Senator Ian Marshall mm. uh, a minute ago now. We, we spoke to Ian a few days ago, actually, and um, you can answer this question anyway, but you can maybe respond directly to Ian here. Mm. Um, Ian suggested the calls for a border poll during the Brexit debacle was opportunistic. And I suppose you can already have touched on that, but, you, you know... Well, I understand why Ian would say that, and I understand where Ian's coming from. Ian's from a unionist uh, British tradition in South Armagh. Yeah. He, he's not from Rebel Cork, which yeah. the Tanish is from. Yeah. So I, I can understand why Ian would, 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 would have a contrary view to that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, look, I, I, I like to think that, you know, the fact that I... I, I, I put an axe beside Ian Marshall's name to get him elected to this place. Yeah. And, and, and I was very happy to do that. Yeah, Sinn endorsed him. Yes, I think that has made a very, he has made a very valuable contribution. And to be fair, in some of the work that he's doing quietly and, and, and privately behind the scenes, he, he, he is making a difference. Um, but to say again that you can't advocate for a democratically endorsed potential pathway out of this madness and some I say that's opportunist. <clears throat> it's not opportunist. It's 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 political, yes. Mm-hmm. And but but that doesn't necessarily equate as opportunist. Um, it's it's about trying to navigate an agreed pathway out. And 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 and, and as I said, I'll do that before, during, and after uh, Brexit. I do that every single day of the week in the every institution and organisation I go into. Um, I will advocate for Irish unification. This is obviously a subject that we could literally talk for weeks mm. about. And I have got more uh, questions I want to ask you, but just before we go off this subject, maybe now. Yeah. Obviously, if there was a border poll tomorrow morning, mm. fifty plus one would um would do regardless of who wins it. Mm. But in an ideal world, if the say nationalist Republican community won it, you would want to take the majority of people with you. So you'd be looking yeah. for like a seventy or eighty percent win. Yeah. But a fifty plus one would be the benchmark. Yeah. Well, of course, and, and, and that's democracy. And I remember getting into this absolutely fantastical, uh, fast, fantastical in a, in a crazy way, uh, exchange with Karen Bradley, um, the British Secretary of State at the British Irish Parliamentary Assembly in London, um, where I, I put it to her during the course of the plenary that the majority of people voted to remain in the North and that she and her government weren't representing or reflecting that reality. And she used it, I'm paraphrasing slightly, but she used a term or a phrase that I hadn't heard in about 20 odd years. And the DUP used to use it. She says, I know, but the majority of the majority voted to stay. So she said that I, I we, we had to be uh, conscious of the fact that a majority of unionists um, voted to remain. And in a weird, crazed way, what that said to me was that their vote was worth more than mine and worth more than everyone else who voted to remain. And I actually I actually busted out laughing because I couldn't believe that any kind of I suppose competent... You would have to laugh or cry. Oh, Jesus, come on. I mean, I just thought that anybody with a tiller of wit, you know, never mind somebody in that position with that responsibility would actually come out and say that. And it just goes to show the toxicity involved in that relationship between the DUP and the British government. That at a meeting, 
where everybody's telling you this is one of the few remaining, you know, platforms through which Britain and Ireland can engage with each other, the Parliamentary Assembly. You had somebody saying that majority just, of the majority. Essentially, I, I mean, it's, it's, it's well, Paisley used to use it. If, if you remember about the Good Friday Agreement, the majority of the majority opposed the agreement, and essentially, what Karen Bradley was saying at that plenary meeting was that look, a majority of unionism voted to leave. So, you know, that was somehow more, that was more the, the uh, realpolitik in mm-hmm. a sense. And I, and I just thought that was just so, I couldn't, I couldn't comprehend whether that was her actual view or whether that was, some, because if it was like, Jesus, come on, that's, that's frightening stuff. It wouldn't be the first time she said no, something. No, not, not at all. And, and th- then I couldn't understand, was it maybe a case of, is she just really that defensive in terms of this stuff? And she's trying to cover her base that she has really just made such a major faux pas but when you then come to hear making all of these other remarks and public utterances you, you then start to think well maybe she was serious mm-hmm. and if she was serious then no greater example of of just the negative malign influence and presence and understanding of, of the current British government certainly in the our politics and in the our affairs yeah now I'll change in tech just a little bit can you see the current impasse at Stormont being overcome? And what will it take to break the logjam, in your opinion? Yes, because... Yes, you can see it being I, overcome. I can see it being overcome because I live in hope and I walk in hope and I engage in politics in hope. And I don't think, again, come back to what we said earlier on, there's there's anything that's insurmountable. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes, and, and, I, and I believe, certainly from... The leadership of republicanism and Sinn Féin that we want and we have proven we want to make the institutions work we want to be in the institutions we want to deliver for people we want to work with political unionism but I think there's a very clear acceptance and understanding not even just confined to nationalism and republicanism now that there can't be a return to what went before mm-hmm. that if that is to take place there has to be credible talks and credible agreements that delivers on people's rights on the demands that are out there on the street, whether it's around access to truth and, and justice, whether it's around women's uh, bodily autonomy, whether it's around Akhnagiliga, whether it's around equal marriage, all of those genies are out of the bottle. And it's it's crazy now, and again, it's another further we, you know, uh, anomaly of partition. People are increasingly looking to the South. They're looking to modernity. They're looking to progress in terms of social uh, issues and those big questions and uh, and then too when they look towards Britain they see the exact same rights lauded as British rights lauded as British progress and delivery but yet um, the DUP for a reason I just can't quite comprehend um, don't want to deliver on the issues of equality for, for people. Just on that note if Shared Ireland were to interview a unionist leader in the coming weeks, mm. which I believe we have, mm. secured an interview, what things would you like us to ask them that could help facilitate creating a Shared Ireland? Well, look, I suppose that's an interesting question because the reality is that it can't be all Republicans and nationalism reaching out and, and, and making these adoptions. There will have to be some kind of mutual compromise and mutual reconciliation on the basis of we share this place and, and we need to continue to share it. Yeah. Um, 
So I wouldn't be doing negotiation through podcasts. I'm not. I'm not authorized to do that anyway. No. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it, 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 for me. I'm looking you to give me well, a, a hand with the questions. questions. <laughs> suppose the, no, suppose the questions need to be. What, what is the fundamental problem to? An expression of Irish identity, the loss of their British identity, I would suggest. I know, and and yes, and again, I wouldn't answer for them, but I mean, I I have had, I remember going up to a, uh, and this will maybe give you a wee insight, and I I I don't say this again to be kind of confrontational or or dismissive, but I remember being on a delegation with Jerry Adams um, to meet Gregory Campbell at, when he was culture minister, and it was to do with issues of uh, Acne Gaelic. Um, Francie Brawley and Rosie McCourty were both MLAs at the time and they were with us and um, I, I remember saying to Jerry probably quite mischievously on the way down saying you know Campbell is a Gaelic surname and he didn't and I says well it means kind of crooked mouth or pant mouth you know uh, and he uh, he took note of that and in the course of the meeting we had to do a meeting via it was like when you go the foreign trips and you have to talk through an interpreter, we had to sit opposite officials and um, the then special advisor to the minister and and speak to them because the minister kind of picked a spot on the wall and wouldn't um, take his look away from it. And we were getting nowhere and that became really, really clear really early on into uh, the meeting. And Jerry put it to uh, Gregory Campbell that surely somewhere inside him, like deep, deep down, there had to be some appreciation or resonance with a, an Irish Gaelic identity given the, the heritage of his own uh, surname. And Gregory Campbell, you can imagine then his reaction to that. And I just thought it was so weird. It was I, I just thought it was really, I, I was... I can imagine, but I would like to hear it still. I, well, I mean, I'll maybe save it for the book, but um, <laughs> it, it, it was, it was, yeah, it, it, it was hot-headed. And, and I have to say, it didn't phase Jerry Adams at all, at all, because he had a wee cup of tea and a saucer in his hand, and it didn't it didn't phase him at all. But I just thought, I mean, I, I, I've talked about the fact previously that, you know, there's uh, ancestors, I suppose, and I and my family who fought in the First World War for the British Army. Um, and I understand the complex historical context of that, you know, hunger and poverty and... Um, all the rest of it and colonialism the fact that we were colonised and where, where else were you going to go you couldn't fight for an Irish army you know because yeah. we were we were occupied by Britain so I just thought that was a, a re I, I always remember that just that reaction that guttural offence at even the slightest hint of this place also being part of your heritage and, and contributing to your heritage mm -hmm. so uh, but, I, but I would like to get an understanding of it yeah. I would like to get an understanding of it because it's obviously very deep-seated yeah. and, and, and it's obviously going to be an issue that we have to resolve. But, I mean, why would the DUP block all of those those issues of, of rights? Mm. How can you profess to be, in your own name, in big shiny lights, democratic, mm -hmm. but yet, you know, oppose things that I think are democratically desired mm -hmm. and, and democratically required as we move forward in terms of progressing um, our society so I don't think equality threatens anyone I think yeah. it, it empowers and enables and enfranchises all of us yeah. um, so I, I certainly would like to get a, a deeper under because I can actually in one sense I can actually understand the issue of the language more even though I disagree with it but I can understand why a staunch unionist and loyalist would be opposed to it mm -hmm. so vehemently 
But the other issues, I'm, I'm not so sure about. And, and I think if we are to have a proper conversation, it's important we, we all understand the, the rationale, if there is one, for what we're bringing to, to any talks process or any negotiation yeah. moving forward. Because okay. the public are, are due an explanation on that even more so than us. Okay. I could probably hazard a guess, but I think the public out there, by and large, unionist nationalist and neither, um, as to why you would you would bring this level of political stalemate on the basis of denying people rights and equality that's freely available all over the place, beyond us, you know. Okay. Niall, what are Sinn Féin doing, if anything, to create an up-to-date white paper document for a new Ireland? And, and this is the key, if you are, are you getting unionist input? Yeah, well, we are engaged on the issue and we're engaged extensively um, on the issue because of the climate that we are in and, and because of what we feel and have articulated we uh, are approaching, uh, whether that's a very short or medium uh, time frame, but it's nevertheless, it's coming. So it's imperative on, on, on us to, to lead in that debate and contribute in that debate. But one of the things that kind of vexes me a wee bit is this expectation that Sinn Féin has to do all the work and present all this. Um, and I don't say that from a point of a, a we don't want to do the work. Um, it's just that it's very difficult when you don't control the revenue or the Department of Health or the Department of Transport um, to uh, really give, I suppose, a credible um, position to people on the basis of what they expect the arrangements to be thereafter. Certainly you can speculate and you can propose, and we have done that, and we will do that again further and, and in a more developed and nuanced way. Um, but it's kind of this case of, you know, <laughs> you, ha you, hear, you hear political opponents here and people who oppose unity in this part of Ireland say, well, that's Sinn Féin, you know, division and, and they're they're trying to throw this opportunist uh, position into the mix but then on the other hand they'll say well where's your plan you know so there's an expectation on don't do it but away and plan for it and choose the plan um, but we are to answer your question and, and, and that digress too much we are working on that and we're engaging extensively um, in-house and outside of uh, the party and we're engaging a whole range of uh, opinion uh, on it and that's how it should be and we will do that because as I say that's our meat and drink that's what we're going to do every day in the week but it needs to be and that's why we're advocating it needs to be more than us for me Niall there's one subject well there's several subjects but there's one main one for me personally yeah that has to unite everybody on this island mm. and that is an all-Ireland healthcare yeah sure because no matter what way we think mm. politically mm. how much money or a little money we have what type of car we drive None of us mm. can avoid being ill, unfortunately, well, at I, some stage in our life. I agree with you. And that is going to be a core pillar um, of this discussion moving forward. And I'd be quite honest with you. I've said it numerous times in this debate. I've said it before outside of this discussion. Um, that I want a united Ireland, a new Ireland, a shared Ireland, an agreed Ireland, an Irish Republic, whatever you want to call it, mm -hmm. based on... The ethos of what we celebrated in the mansion house a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. That one, I, I, I'm not really big into a United Ireland that doesn't have a healthcare, a, a universal healthcare system. Yeah, because that runs contrary to my belief yeah. and what my aspiration for our people and for this country. I think we can do it. I think we deserve it. I think we're entitled to it. 
I think there's a, a prerequisite on the state to provide that care um, if there is a political will to do it. And certainly we have Louise O'Reilly, who's our health spokesperson here uh, in the South, has published an initial discussion document around All-Ireland Healthcare, um, which is available on the website. And certainly as we move forward, the, the issue of health will be, a, as I say, a core component uh, of that uh, discussion. But I would far rather, again, I would far rather that, yes, we were leading on that and participating in that, but I would far rather that, you know, the nursing unions were out demanding that. Okay. I would far rather that the um, the the department were being instructed to prepare papers mm-hmm. for a, a, an All-Ireland healthcare and high-slanted care could be developed across the entirety yeah. uh, of Ireland. Um, so... Again, yes, we can do it and we will and we'll publish it and we'll debate it and we'll discuss it and we'll analyse it. Um, but the onus nigh, the onus nigh is on people. You can't keep burying your head in the sand. And the Irish government, I think the onus is on them to come up with a white paper. On there it. has to be. Uh, the, the, yes, the, the Irish government needs to publish a white paper uh, on uh, Irish unity. I know Fianna Fáil, uh, Senator Mark Daly mm-hmm. has done fairly stringent work on this with Gunther Thurmond. Yeah. And he's kind of dispelled the myth that there would be a shortfall in the budget. And yeah, stuff well, there's, 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 a, there's a, a number of pieces of work out there that Mark, to be fair to him, collated and, and, and kind of pulled together and, 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 and stitched a lot of There was a lot of kind of threads hanging loose, mm-hmm. and, and, and he was able to stitch a lot of that together um, through the Good Friday Agreement Committee um, to dispel some of the uh, scaremonger yeah. around it. But again, that, that, that's not a silver bullet. No, you know that's not a silver bullet either, and and and, and I say that with respect to Mark because it was important that it, that that it was done, but it needs to be cross cutting. It needs to be about health. It needs to be about all of the issues. And and what you need there is an all of government response mm-hmm. in the way that they did to Brexit. Yeah, that that was about planning. That was about planning in a great deal of uncertainty yeah. and a great deal of complexity. Um. But if you can do that, and if you can do that to a reasonable degree of success, although we don't know what's down the line, um, then the inevitable question is, why can't you do it for Irish unity? You can. You can. You absolutely can. If the will is there. If the will is there. Yeah. And if the, uh, the, the the government say that it needs to be uh, done. But the way that they will make that decision is when they start to hear it from their own grassroots. And I think... I think that process has started. I think they're starting to hear it from their own uh, grassroots. And that is when we'll see uh, the change. Well, I suppose that's what we, as in Shared Ireland, are all about. We're trying to promote and get this conversation mm-hmm. going. Now, tell me this. The Repeal the Eighth Movement took mm-hmm. the country by storm. Were you involved with this campaign? And what, if anything, can be learned from it in regards of a possible border poll and winning it? Well, the key thing to, to, to learn from it is basically what I just said two minutes ago, and it's the same for the marriage equality referendum, is that you need broader society input mm-hmm. and investment into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're going to have another referendum here in October, hopefully all been well, around extend presidential voting rights to citizens in the north and among the diaspora. And I have done some uh, work with colleagues in this institution but also have been to London um, and other places to talk to the diaspora. Um, but we need to win that referendum. We need to win that. Could it be um, like a, a tester? 
Well, potentially, potentially, who knows? Um, I don't think it it, it should be no, sold no, on, on that basis. Oh, certainly, um, no. Because, uh, but I do think it is important that 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 unionism broadly are engaged with the issue, and 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 if they so wish, should avail of that vote and and should help shape. Because what I always say about the president, the president isn't the president of a landmass. They're the first citizen, mm-hmm. the representative of the Irish people, and the Irish people are broader than the 26 county states mm-hmm. they're broader than this uh, landmass they're all over the place okay. um, so that's why I think it's so important and unionism have a role in shaping that office and I think the office has already proven particularly during Mary Magalise's term that it can be an office that is engaged with unionism that, that hears them that has an open door to them that seeks to represent and reflect their tradition and their mark within Irish history Irish uh, culture and also Irish life as it is uh, today. But the point I'm trying to make is that we need people to be mobilised around that. We need people to be engaged in the same way they were around the, the, the 8th. And I was very happy and content to go out and, and canvas for uh, a, a yes vote in, in the repeal uh, referendum. I was down in Dundalk and Drogheda. And again, there's a wee bit of me kind of laments the fact that you're watching all this and you're participating in it. And I, I actually said the point I made the point when we were passing the bill, the referendum bill, to basically the legislation that allows you to hold the referendum mm-hmm. in the Shannon, that I was very privileged to be able to get up and vote for that referendum to be held. But I was also very conscious of the fact that I would have a vote in the referendum yeah. and that people, uh, Irish citizens where I live, wouldn't and mm-hmm. would watch on mm-hmm. as spectators in, in many ways. And that, yeah. was, that was sad, that was unfortunate because a, a, a country so small... And you have such significant steps uh, in advance of, of 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 social progress and and equality and people's rights. Just um, on that point, Niall, I think that's what our two unionist guys, Nigel and Fraser, that we did the podcast with recently. That's what they said that they look upon the South, Dublin, wherever. Um, it's a very more liberal yeah. society now than where they are living yeah. in the six counties, and I think that's a big attraction to people as well. It is, and 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 I understand that, and in some ways, yes. I mean, nationalists and Republicans in the north probably look with the same sentiment and the same view, but it is important to say, and and this is the other side of being down here, just physically present in this yeah. city and and involved in in politics and in these institutions. It's not all rosy in the garden either. Of course not. And 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 Sinn Féin leaders will often say, and I agree with it, that any form of reunification can't be about the two states bolting each other on no. one another with all of the problems and all of the economic devastation. I mean, I I, I see the homelessness in this city. Right. I stay uh, when I'm down, where there are families being reared in the hotel room beside me. Yeah. You know where there's fam- fathers out kicking a ball in a hotel car park. With their kids, crazy in two thousand and nineteen. It's 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 frightening and it's depressing and it's it's not reflective of the Ireland that I want. No. Going forward, um, whether in the present or in a future shared mm-hmm. agreed Ireland. Yeah. Um, so I I do accept and I agree and I'm not taken away from the fact that there has been big social progress, big social changes, uh, big momentous things that have happened and and it's no wonder people look on that with a degree of, you know sadness that we're not part of it but we are part of it but we're distant from it but we're not distant from it because it's just down the road yeah um and that's the big anomaly that's the big screaming anomaly and inconsistency of partition yeah that's that's what it does it, it deprives of it mm-hmm. deprives us of 
progress. It deprives us of advancement, no matter who you are or what your cultural background is in the North. Partition stunts all of our growths. Yeah. And and what I have come to learn in, in this institution is that that isn't just confined to the Northeast. Partition has harmed and damaged and scarred communities and places and peoples along the southern side of the border uh, as well. When you look at the infrastructure around the border counties, when you look at the northwest up in the Donegal, and just the absolute devastation that has been uh, brought to bear on, on communities. We're going to uh, touch there. on Donegal in yeah. a wee second. Okay. Before we do so now, what can we do to encourage and support Irish startups and businesses? What programmes are there currently in place uh, or what can be expanded upon to help them? Well, I suppose it's not a really encouraging time for business. It's a really uncertain time. And I actually listened to a thing on, on Radio uh, Ulster this morning before I left the house um, about the first kind of event in, in the north to bring a lot of the business sectors together to talk about planning uh, for Brexit and, and, and some of the issues. So I suppose the question has to deal in, in economic and political and social realities. And at the minute, it's a very uncertain time for businesses overall, never mind startup and new business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really difficult, uh, I suppose, in, in the context of Dublin. Again, you look at Dublin and you see the Facebooks and the Googles and, and the, big, the big glass cages that spring up along the quay, as Luke Kelly yeah. famously sang. And you wonder how uh, a, 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 an Irish, an indigenous Irish business can, can really make it. I think, I think I read somewhere um, not that long ago that one of the biggest problems that new businesses in particular have is a lack of access to credit and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, well, that's not surprising given the economic devastation in the last number of years. Yeah. And, and and while Fine Gael will tell you everything's rosy in the garden, and, and it, it's, it's really not. The people have taken a massive hit, and the impact and the reverberations of the crash are still being felt. Not, and, and, and I don't believe there is a degree of inevitability about that, but it doesn't need to be as, ina- as, as inevitable to the extent that it is. And again, I think a lot of that is, a lot of that is down to political choices. Yeah. So when you don't pursue Apple for the vast arrays of billions of euros that they should be paying in tax, then you're not going to be able to redistribute that uh, tax in the way that doesn't just help alleviate the burden of homelessness and the health crisis, but that also can be targeted in a way that does encourage indigenous startup, that does support existing small to medium uh, businesses um, that are struggling and that are now further impacted um, on the 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 by the issue of Brexit. One of the big mad contradictions I found was: Do you remember the British government told businesses in the north? Go and ask the Irish government. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you were struggling and if you were mm-hmm. worried about VAT yeah. and if you were worried about customs and trade across the border and all of that, and I'm not saying that's the that's the right or valid approach, but then the Irish government were holding all of these getting Ireland Brexit ready events mm-hmm. all over the state mm-hmm. and didn't bring one into the six counties, which I thought was just crazy. Um, so we were kind of left again in this purgatory of partition where you know the Irish government wouldn't uh, come north and engage with business and, and, and that sector and then you had the Brits saying um, we'll go and talk to the Irish government we don't really mm-hmm. care we're going to be a bit cheeky and a bit mischievous in this so we all lost out again as a result of partition and, yeah. and, and, and that anomaly that, that's inflicted uh, upon us so it's a difficult time for it's an uncertain time for business and businesses all 
detest uncertainty. Business leaders need certainty. And that's why also, too, I think it's important that the business sector and the business community start to talk about what their role would be in future planning for mm-hmm. reunification, yeah. but also what kind of economy they want, yeah. what kind of society they want to contribute to, what kind of society they want to sell to, what kind of society they want to buy from. Yeah. Um, and again, one of the big ways for us to do that and to ensure a degree of certainty, and it has been said very clearly by the EU, is for the entirety of Ireland to remain within the EU and to have that harmonisation right across uh, the, the country. Mm-hmm. And one way to do that is obviously we've advocated designated special status since the get-go, which is now essentially developed into the backstop. Or, as the Council indicated, a pathway back in the EU is via reunification. Mm-hmm. Now, Nadal has recently voted in favour of Sinn Féin's No Consent, No Sale bill, which aims to give mortgage holders the power to block the sale of their loans to vulture funds. Mm. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And also, what do you think about the news that Enda Kenny has got a job with the vulture fund? Well, you won't be surprised to hear that I wouldn't be entirely surprised by that news when you look at some of our previous TCN government ministers and where they have finished up uh, in, in their careers and, and, and in their kind of political uh, uh, sunset years. Um, the, I, I think the no consent, no seal bill pretty much does this, exactly what it says on the tin. I mean, we all seen the devastation at Ross Common. Uh, we all seen the mm-hmm. scenes that were reminiscent of something out of Black 47. Mm-hmm. But we also seen a community that has had enough. We've also seen a people that were saying, look, this far and no further. You can't punish families. You can't punish valued, respected members of a community. You can't further devastate rural areas, which are already so hindered in terms of their their growth and and, and their development by the economic and political choices that government makes, by the recession, by the lack of investment. And we're encouraged to go and buy their houses. And we're encouraged to go and buy their houses. And we're, you know, and, and, and then say to them, we're going to take it off you and we're going to sell it. And, and I, I take a great deal of heart to have to say from the people that, 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 that stood up and said, enough's enough. Mm-hmm. That, you know, that they're hot. Because again, it comes back to the kind of Ireland I want to live in mm-hmm. and the kind of Ireland I want to see and the kind of political choices I want our party to make moving forward. And I think Pierce, no more an articulate representative Pierce Doherty. of Pierce Doherty to argue just that frustration of rural Ireland, just that deep anger of what has been inflicted on that community being a a Donegal man being a Donegal man but also offering a solution offering an alternative because what the government will repeat ad nauseum in here is that all Sinn Féin do is come in and criticise we're the only opposition party that offer a fully costed by the department alternative budget Mm -hmm. that says this is what we would do this is the choices we would make the other parties certainly offer bullet points, bullet point reviews of what the government have, have issued. But the mammoth degree of work I see from this party, which is still comparatively relatively small, um, relatively new into these institutions, um, the mammoth amount of work that goes into, A, those alternatives, but also legislation like the No Consent, uh, No Sealed Bill that says, 
this is what you should do. But probably more importantly to people is, this is what we would do. Mm -hmm. This is the choices we would make because we value rural communities. We value the importance of keeping people in their home in areas that are already ravaged and devastated as a result of economic uh, neoliberalism mm -hmm. um, that has driven uh, the political agenda, certainly uh, in this uh, city, mm -hmm. but also uh, in this government, um, who just seemed quite content to go to Dublin Castle on the day of those big momentous of votes uh, and get their photos taken. But don't want to go into rural Ireland, don't want to go into the Gaeltop areas, mm -hmm. which are absolutely being annihilated in terms of the amount of young people, even now in the so-called re recovery, having to go uh, elsewhere, whether it's to the broader metropolitan Dublin area, or whether it's the England, or whether it's the Australia, or whether it's the North America, or whether it's increasingly now to um, uh, Dubai and all, you know, mm -hmm. you're fighting Irish people with hurling clubs established all over the place now, yeah. places where they never were uh, before. So I think, I, I'm, I'm not surprised by in this move, I, I, I kind of loosely seen that that stuff uh, on on social media uh, at the weekend, and in terms of the no consent, no seal bill, I think it's a it's a real clear expression of what Sinn Fein are about in the here and now, but also about the choices we we'll, we'll want to make moving forward. We know from that now, but unfortunately, it's connected. Mm. If you look at the train map of Ireland, it stops at Sligo. The issues that affect Donegal are applicable to Derry, Fermanagh and Tyrone mm -hmm. as well. As you know, what, if anything, is being done to improve this now? Did you say the train map there? The train map. Trade or train? Train. Choo-choo. Choo-choo. <laughs> yeah, it stops its Lego. I've seen that map. I've seen that map several times. And the curious thing is that if you go back to a map from like the 1920s and 1930s and Correct. 1940s. That's right. There is an extensive connected real network right across the entirety uh, of Ireland. It's wonderful, isn't and it? It's, it's, I mean, it's, when you look at it in those... We've gone backwards. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, it's frightening. And certainly, I, I, but again, I think it's just indicative of a culture that has um, total disregard for rural Ireland and what it brings, what it, what, what it contributes. You see, it contributes more, although it does contribute quite a lot economically, but it contributes more to us um, than that. And if we make the necessary investment beyond the Dublin metropolitan area, we can see, well, I mean, Ireland's a relatively small country. Mm -hmm. If we put the proper transportation infrastructure in place, whether that's public transport in terms of trains, whether that's road connectivity, um, we could have people living in the West and working uh, in Dublin still, but we could also make those broader connections out if, if again, and this seems to be a consistent pattern emerging now, if the political will was there to do it. So sometimes you have to take a, a chance. Sometimes you have to take a big, bold uh, decision. And don't get me wrong, I have advocated in council when I was there and since coming down here for a high-speed rail link between Belfast and Dublin. And I think that's absolutely necessary. I think it's completely necessary to uh, stimulate the economy, uh, particularly uh, in the north. Attract um, inward investment. Attract inward investment. Um, facilitate the investment that is coming. Mm -hmm. The amount of people who would have travelled to Belfast in the Dublin airport and said to me, if they'd have met me at City Hall or met me uh, wherever, said, I can't believe the length of time it took that train to get up the road. Mm -hmm. 
you know they just couldn't believe it um in such a short journey but ultimately the the the, the, the plan for that and the ambition for that and what we should be pressurizing uh people like uh the european union for is ultimately i suppose a big train loop ring road Mm-hmm. From Derry to Belfast to Dublin to Wexford to Cork to Galway to Mayo, mm-hmm. uh, back up to Donegal and Derry again. Yeah, I mean, well, 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 that, that's ambitious. Certainly, it's a big infrastructural project, but other countries have done it. But what what is the pursuance of this government currently? Yeah, but you say it's ambitious, but surely the people of Donegal, Tyrone, Fermanagh, it's something that we shouldn't have to beg for. No, not something not, that should be there. Not at all. But also, it's about maximizing the existing infrastructure that has been there mm. and has maybe been allowed to fall yeah. into waste um, it's about stimulating some of that and, and re-stitching mm-hmm. the country you know re-stitching the country in a way that connects yeah. those places um, to um, the, and, and shares the bounty yeah. shares the bounty that, that, that that's available to certain parts uh, of, of, of the country but I wanted to make a wee point there just, and I, and I went out of my head just when you said that and, and it was and I forget what it was now, but it was it was important at the time because I thought of it. But it it'll maybe come back to me um, as we go along. But you know, I, I guess yes. I mean, again, it comes back to that point. The government is currently going to court to prohibit Apple from paying them billions of euros in tax. Like that's actually happening. A government is going to court to challenge. Why? I can't answer that question. I mean. But what it says to me is that the political choices are completely slanted in the wrong direction and slanted against the wrong people. I don't want to prohibit any uh, major uh, foreign direct investment coming onto this island. No way. I, I mean, I, I was very uh, delighted to see a lot of it come Belfast way. But again, that has to be uh, shared across the entirety of the island and it has to be directed in a way that, that can facilitate that. Yeah. I understand why big companies want to come and look at Dublin and say, well, we'll go there. So why would you go to Mayo? Yeah. You know, why would you go to Sligo? Why would you go to Donegal? Mm-hmm. You know, why would you go to Coleraine? Why would you go to Ballycastle? Yeah. You know, when we build a motorway in the north to Ballymena, you know, or Dungannon mm-hmm. and Nakadari, all of that is, is a legacy, again, of what I talked about earlier on, of how both uh, parts of the island were stunted and hindered uh, and our potential stifled as a result of partition. So any future discussion about reunification and, 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 and a future Ireland needs to, as a matter of fundamental importance, talk about how we restitch uh, the country and equally balance out the connectivity. Again, the issue of transport. Why can we develop the Wild Atlantic Way as the fantastic global asset that it is for tourism. Mm-hmm. But we can't build a road from uh, Dublin to Donegal. I think we're going to maybe build a bridge from uh, to Scotland. But... <laughs> well, we'll see about that. Yeah. Now, unfortunately, time is against us here. But we always like to finish off with it on a slightly more light-hearted note, possibly. If you could invite three people to your dinner party, alive or dead, who one. would they be and why? Ah, it's a tough one. It's a really, I like to think really you'll invite me anyway after yeah, today. Yeah, well, um, do you know that's a tough one? That's a really, really hard one. Because you don't want to be cliched and go for the kind of usual big ones, you know, and say, 
Well, that's the first time I've asked this question. So no, but I mean, like, more generally. You get, you get that more generally, you know. Um, it's kind of like I was listening to podcasts at Desert Island Discs and I was thinking, how the hell do you pick eight songs <laughs> to bring to Desert Island with you? Um, I suppose in the week that we're in it, we're about to open the James Connolly Centre uh, on the Falls Road. Absolutely fantastic centre. We have the largest delegation of trade union activists from North America over uh, in the city at the minute. Um, I was in the crumb with them last night uh, just to welcome them. Um, I suppose Connolly. I would love to hear Connolly's view of Dublin and Belfast today. Uh huh. He probably wouldn't recognise it on one level, but recognise a hell of a lot in it. You know, the slums, people living in wee small box rooms and paying extortionate rent, landlords, people not paying their fair share. So I would love to, because I've always been a big reader of Connolly's writings. James Connolly. James Connolly's one. one. So I would I would like to get his view on on the Ireland of of today. Um, God, that's my phone. Um, God Halbert, she just passed away there recently. I'm a big fan of soul music. I'd love to talk to uh, Aretha Franklin. Oh, very good. Um, about her experiences in life and about her her, her music, uh, primarily. And then, lastly. Lastly, lastly, do you know what would be good? I'll, I'll let you in on a wee secret. When you have dinner with Jerry Adams, you're not allowed to talk politics. Oh. So I would bring him allowed along so I, think, I wouldn't I have think, to talk politics. I think our listeners would find that one hard to believe. <laughs> well, it's true. It's true. I get reprimanded for it once or twice. So who's so, your third, Jerry? Jerry, uh, uh, So you can't talk politics. So we can't talk politics and we'll have to talk about just nice things. <laughs> and sure, you could bring, give him, go and buy that cookbook, you could bring a load of lovely dishes along with him uh, as well. He can look after cooking the food. Very good. Yeah, very good. Okay, finally, one more answer, please. Okay. Potatoes, rice or pasta? Potatoes. Best film? Stand by me. Water or alcohol? Water. <laughs> Favourite food? Oh, oh God. Oh, Jesus. That's a tough one. That seems to be. It seems to be. Um, some I'll probably just say steak and chips to get an answer. Not a bad answer. Ah. Rugby, GA or soccer? GA. This will be a difficult one for you. Okay. Best county in Ireland. Ah, come on. Um, oh, jeez. Oh, God. This could be more divisive than all my answers about Brexit and Irish unity. Um, course, County Down. Course, County Down. Okay. Um, With County Donegal coming a close second. Okay. Because us Belfast Gales have a deep connection to Donegal. And this is the most difficult question that I've asked you all day. The best political party in Ireland. Now, when you say party, do you mean party party? Like, Because <laughs> I can tell you where there's some good political parties. Um, of course it's Sinn Féin. Of course it's Sinn Féin. Uh, of course it is. Niall O'Donoghue, on that note, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you today. And on behalf of Shared Ireland and our listeners and myself, I would like to wish you every success moving forward. Goramira, my hugget, agus arp mar. Goramai, get my hoot.